Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. To the investigators out there, he names the street, but no, most importantly also, or just as important, is the fact that he's saying this man... Trayvon Martin is circling his car, so he's in such dire strait or so fear that he gets out of the car to go follow him. So he's either truthful in saying he's circling the car, or he's lying about it. Either way, it shows that he's not telling the truth, because if he's really that in fear of, why does he get out of the car? Or is he saying that as another explanation as to why maybe he had to kind of confront him, as to explain that maybe, oh, it was the victim that attacked him. You see, the victim was already showing uh, that he was going to do something because he started circling the car. And that's what a person that's about to commit a crime does. That's what he wanted the police to believe. And find out where he went. And he said, we don't need you to do that. And I said, well, okay. Um, he said, we already have a police officer in route. And I said, oh, all right. And I I had gone where through the dog walk where I normally walk my dog and walked back through to my street, the street that loops around. And he said, we already have a police officer on the way. So I said, okay. I told, they said, would you like a police officer to reach? And I said, yes. And I told them where my car was and then making the model. Mm-hmm. So I was walking back through where my car was and he jumped out from the bushes and he said what the fuck's your problem homie and I got my cell phone out to call 911 this mm-hmm. time and I said hey man I don't have a problem and he goes no now you have a problem and he punched me in the nose at that point I felt that okay. so a few key things to remember there or point out that I would suggest to you number one is where he walks his dog but he doesn't know the name of the street in terms of getting there's only again three streets number two is he's walking back even he's told not to follow him so he decides to obey even though he wasn't ordered not to follow him but he decides to go back to the car when this man came out of the bushes you will see that he changes that and he and he catches himself but you'll see it it's coming up because number one is to where those bushes were but he also at some point catches himself when he says I was going towards him. Oh, he, he came out. He came towards me. Then you would see him getting ready to punch me. As soon as he punched me, I fell backwards um, into the grass. Okay. This man, Trayvon Martin, this teenager, came at him. Now, he's out there in the darkness, and he's got a gun, but of course he hasn't taken his gun out. Because that would be illegal. He's got the right to conceal it. 
because he suspects somebody of a crime. He's not a police officer. He can't go arrest them. But he's just kind of wandering out there in the darkness, even though this guy has circled his car. But he's not in fear. He's just kind of wandering. Does that make sense? He goes down to the darkness after somebody he's scared of, and he's not on guard to what's going on. See, because he's got to convince the police, and by virtue of giving that statement to the police, convince you, the defense has got to convince you, that he was just kind of walking and the victim came out of nowhere. Uh, improper presentation of the case law and the law concerning my client's obligations to prove anything. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, at the close of the um, end of the attorney's closing arguments, I will instruct you on the law that's applicable to this case, and you will be given that law back to uh, the jury room to compare with how you find the facts to be. Thank you. Go ahead. He's trying to convince the police that he hadn't done anything wrong. And on my nose and on my mouth. And he says, you're going to die tonight. And Again, now he's saying that the level of violence towards him is escalating. Because Trayvon Martin just decides to shut him up by, you know, and, and the amazing thing, and I'm going to get this to this in one of the uh, slides that you will see, or PowerPoint presentations you'll see, he must have had like 10 hands out there, or 10 arms because he's able to do all this while the, the defendant is just sitting there, letting him put his hands over him, not doing anything. Does that make sense? My jacket and my shirt came up, and when he said, you're going to die tonight, I felt his hand go down on my side, and I thought he was going for my firearm. So I grabbed it immediately, and as he banged my head again, I just pulled out my firearm and shot him. Okay. And then what happened? So, the gun wasn't exposed earlier. He's getting beat up, but he hasn't taken the gun out. It's only when the victim starts reaching for the gun. Now, he tells Osterman that he actually grabbed the gun or touched it. But he says he's reaching for the gun, and then I realize as he's holding my hand, one hand over my mouth, one hand over my nostril, I can't breathe, but I see it. He's got that, that third hand that he's going for the gun. Does that make sense? And the victim only went for the gun because the gun became ex exposed. Your with the court's uh, permission, I've had uh, the deputy check it, the gun, and I, I haven't checked it again. He's got this gun and this holster. And you'll see in a few minutes, maybe more than a few minutes, one of the things that he does, he demonstrates to the police where he had the gun. And it wasn't right here in the front. It was towards the back and it was hidden. And he'll demonstrate to the police out there where it was. Look at the gun. Look at the size of this gun. How did the victim see that in the darkness?
Where was it? It wasn't outside. It was tucked in behind. And he'll demonstrate to the police where it was. How did the victim see this gun? Or is it just another lie that he tells? So I remember I once I shot him, I holstered my firearm and I got on top of him and I held his hands on because he was still talking. And he and uh, I said, Stay down, don't move. And uh, then A key point in that is that he tells the officers out there police station and later out at the scene that he didn't realize originally that he had shot the victim. Well, if he's in such fear and he's hasn't, he doesn't realize he shot him, what the heck is he doing holstering his gun? If he's so scared. Or is that just police jargon? That's what police do when they shoot somebody. First they make sure that the person's either dead or handcuffed and then they automatically holster the gun. But he's got that police jargon talking, and that's what the police are taught. But if he's so scared, what is he doing holstering his gun? Because he claims at one point that the victim said, oh, you got me or something, and he thought, oh, he scared him. Because he's trying to convince the police that he really didn't intend to shoot him at that point. That, yeah, he was in fear, but he really wasn't intending to shoot him. He was just trying to kind of scare him, maybe. Recall, it's always dark. They always come around nighttime. They always come around at nighttime. They being, pardon my language, the assholes or the fucking punks that are committing these burglaries. Again, going back to that assumption that he made originally when he profiled a 17 year old boy that had skittles. That's the crime he committed that evening. Skittles that he didn't even steal from 7-Eleven. He legitimately bought. You saw the videotape. He wasn't instilling fear into that clerk over there because he was wearing a hoodie. But somehow, this man right here became suspicious of a 17-year-old kid who's wearing a hoodie at 70 in the evening or 7.10 in the evening. Straight through to see if there was a street sign that I could tell dispatch where I lost sight of him at. And when I walked back, that's when he came out of the darkness and I guess he was upset that I called the police. Now he's starting to speculate or trying to convince the police Oh, I guess that's why he must have attacked me or why he came out. Because he must have been upset that I called the police. See, he's trying to justify to the police why he did what he did. And of course, it's not that he came to the wrong assumption originally. It's no. I was just checking for the street sign. I was just doing my job as a neighborhood watchman or just a citizen concerned about crime. And I guess he came out of there because he must have realized that I call the police, meaning that first assumption still existing in his mind. He is a criminal, and that's what criminals do. They don't want to get caught. 
cell phone away. Okay. And then when I walked back towards him, I I saw him coming at me. Did you hear that? When I walked back towards him, he switches mid-sentence, I saw him coming towards me. He acknowledges at that point that he is the aggressor. He's the one that's going and pursuing the victim. But he catches himself when he says that, and then he goes, oh, he walked towards me. And I went to grab my phone. I don't remember if I had time to pull it out or not. And he claims that he went to for the phone. See, because he's got to then explain why he, being a 5'7", 204-pound, perfectly healthy 28-year-old man, is overpowered by this 5'11", 158-pound kid. And he, being the one that's tracking him or following him, He's on guard. He's got two flashlights. He's got a gun. This kid is the one that's scared because this guy's following him. He's got to explain why this kid got the upper hand. Oh, I, I was going for my phone, and I just got distracted. Was he going for his phone, or was he going for a gun? Were they in the same place? Defendant's interview, that same day, part two. What did he do there? He drew uh, different areas and it tracks in terms of where he was, where he claims he saw the victim, where the victim just came out of nowhere, where the victim was just kind of looking suspicious. And, you know, you've got that in evidence. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that, but he drew the different places where he claims the victim was and what, in his mind, caused him to be suspicious of a 17-year-old boy. Defendant's photo, or photographs taken of the defendant that you saw. Defense made a big deal. Oh, he was washed up. Well, you've got this bloody photograph here, and you've got that, I guess, and according to Dr. DeMail, I guess one of the uh, EMS people out there just kind of put it back in place put the nose back in place because you heard from Ms. Falgate. She didn't see anything. She saw it might be fractured. They don't know. What she recommended is go get x-rays. That's how we verify it. The defendant refused or declined to do that. That's his privilege. But they're going to argue to you, oh, he had a broken nose. Well, first of all, who was following who? Who started the, the fight or struggle? I circled this because in reviewing the evidence, I thought this might be interesting to you. And what I'm cir circled up there are his shoes. The defense claims, defendant told the police that he was on his back the whole time and the victim was just wailing on him. Well, and you can look at the actual photograph. There's actually some grass on top and it appears wet, as if maybe he at some point was on top of the victim. Just a minor point. Kind of corroborates some of the evidence the witness's testimony. Save exhibit 52, the back jacket of the defendant. Wow. Where's all the scrapes, scratch marks? Something to reflect all this tension with these concrete that occurred out there. How come it's missing? Back of his head. 
You recall the testimony? There was two. How small were they? You recall the testimony of, of the witness, Miss Fulgate? I think I had her. Tell me how, how, how big it was. And I think she was, I mean, it was hard to keep. Anyway, you remember it. Why are his hands not injured? If this 17-year-old young man is wailing on him, how come he's not defending himself? Again, these are just little parts of the interview that he gave, and you, you obviously heard this, so I just want to take you to take a second to read that. But he talks about these guys, he talks about not knowing these places. Again, he's trying to make up one lie after another after another. Yeah, he was serving in my car. As soon as I saw him coming, I rolled up the window because I was so scared of him. Because he was a criminal. I didn't know the name of the street that I was on. And then he talks about, you know, they remind him, we didn't need you to do that. I had already gone through the dog walk, told him where my car was, make a model, jumped out of the bushes, hey man, you have a problem, and then punched me and fell to the ground. And then he's wailing on my head. I yelled for help. He grabbed my head and hit it into the sidewalk. When he started doing that, I slid into the grass still yelling for help. Help! He's killing me! And then, of course, this criminal put his hands over my mouth and said, you're going to die tonight. And that's what, of course, led me to the garden. He's got that legal training that he's aware of in terms of what he's got to say. He, the victim, said, you got me after being shot. And he was still talking. I said, stay down, don't move. I got on top of him. He said, ow, ow. And then he's talking about that he's telling the people that came out, I don't need you to call the police, I need you to help me with this guy. But he holsters his gun too at the same time. It's always dark. You know, they always come out around <laughs> nighttime. And he talks about still not having seen the victim. He's struck in the nose. I screamed help probably 50 times. Anything else important? No. You didn't try to make contact with him? No. Then, you know, you can see the map. You can track down when you look at, at the timeline in terms of does it match where he's claiming he's at when he's talking. I would submit to you it doesn't. But again, you rely on what the evidence shows. Came out of the bushes. I don't recall if he came from the front or behind. He punched me in the face and I fell backwards. When I, back, when I walked back towards him, I saw him coming at me. He catches himself at mid-sentence. That is the truth. When I walked back toward him, meaning I was going towards where he was. And he goes, oh, no, he was coming at me. And that written statement he gave to the police, my purpose in showing you this is, he now refers to the suspect. Not, pardon my language, effing punk or asshole. Now he's the police term for a criminal that they haven't arrested a suspect. He's got that down pat. 
suspect over and over, trying to impress the police, like he knows the stuff. Hey, you know, I want to be a police officer one day. Suspect this, suspect that, suspect that. Fired one shot into his torso. You know, he's got all the language down. To Detective Investigator Serena, followed, lost sight, had flashlight, but it was dead. You got a problem? No, you've got a problem now. And all of a sudden, he beat him. Started beating him. Smothered by mouse and nose. Felt him slide his hand down. You're going to die tonight, MF. You got me. I spread hand, his hands away from the body, still talking, but I don't remember what he said. Let's talk about... There's been a history of uh, break-ins in that building, and I called previously about this house. Right. When the police arrived at this house, when I called the first time, the windows were open and the door was unlocked. Uh, and the police came to security, so I said, you know what, I, it's better to just call and... Okay. I kept driving. I passed him, and he was—he kept staring at me and staring around, looking around uh -huh. to see who else was. I don't know why he was looking. At me. Did he walk off from there, or did he stop there last night? He stopped, and he—he—he he, he like looked around, and that's why. I was... This is what he claims this criminal is doing. Where was he standing at when you? Boy, that's a crime at RTL on Sunday night, February 26th. Standing out there in the grass. Okay, and I went to the clubhouse. right there. He originally told the police over and over before and even after this interview. He didn't know the name of the street. And then when they just kind of let him talk, he gives the name right there. I mean, it's common sense. There's only three streets and he's lived there four years. Again, why did he have to lie about that? Because he does not want to admit that he was following this innocent young boy. A 17-year-old he made a right in there, and they said, well, what direction did he go? And I said, I don't know, I can't see him. And they said, can you get to somewhere where you can see him? And I said, yeah, I, I can. So I backed out.
behind the yard. In front of the Ford truck? Yes, and I saw him. And I saw him walking back that way and then cut through the back of the houses. He looked back and he noticed me and he cut back through the houses. I was still on the phone with non-emergency. Um, and then he came back and he started walking up towards the grass and then came down and circled my car. And I told the operator that. He was circling my car. I didn't hear if he said anything. Right. But he had his hand in his waistband. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think I told the operator that. And they said, where are you? And I could not remember the name of the street because I don't live on this street. Right. Retreat view circle goes in a circle. Oh, right. And I said, I, I, I don't know. And he goes, we need an address. And I said, I don't know an address. I think I gave them my address. What, two minutes earlier, a minute earlier, giving him the street name, but now he's telling <coughs> this investigator that that's the reason why he had to go and follow. I'm sorry, not follow. He had to go find the address because he wants to justify as to why he would go down that route. Just by coincidence, it keeps kind of tracking where this criminal is going. Out and look for a street sign, right? So I got out of my car and I started walking. Go ahead. right there to the right but of course he directs the attention to the investigators see this is the back of the houses there's no address there like they're just fools
here, I looked, I didn't see anything again, and I was walking back to my truck. And then when I got to right about here, he yelled from behind me, behind me. He said, yo, you got a problem? And I turned around, and I said, no, I don't have a problem, man. Where was he at? He was about there, but he was walking towards me. Yes, sir. I was, like I said, I was already past that, so I didn't see exactly where he came from, but he was about where you were. And I said, no, I don't have a problem. And I went to go grab my cell phone, but my, I left it in a different pocket. I went, I looked down in my pants pocket, and he said, you got a problem now. And then he was here, and he punched me in the face. some of the injury? Got his firearm. My jacket moved up, and he saw it. I feel like he saw it. He looked at it, and he said, "You're gonna die tonight, motherfucker." And he reached for it, but he reached like I felt his arm going down to my side, and I grabbed it, and I just grabbed my firearm. One of his other versions is that he actually grabbed the victim's arm and removed the arm so he would have a better shot. Again, he's able to do all this. I guess the victim has two or three hands or arms. See if that all makes sense, what he's describing. photograph taken by Mr. Manalo. Again, lying about that. Because he's trying to justify to the police that he was searching because, of course, the victim had to have something in his hand, meaning some kind of weapon that would have caused him to resort to the shooting. Um, he, like, sat up. You're still here, Yes, sir. He was on top of me like this. I shot him. And I didn't think I hit him because he sat up. And he said, look, you got me. You got it. You got me. You got it. Something like that. So I thought he was just saying, I know you have a gun now. I heard it. I'm giving up. So I don't know if I pushed him off me or he fell off me. Either way. 
Rashi says he assumed he hadn't shot him, but then he had to push him off of him. Does that make sense? I guess when he said you, you got, he just kind of fell into him when he hasn't been shot. And again, this is just in written form. Some of the stuff you already heard, just to kind of remind you of some important stuff. You've also got, and I'm not going to play it for you, but you got a car clubhouse video. It's very short. There's uh, clips of it. By coincidence, it appears that there's a vehicle going in it. You might even see a person. Not that you see a full figure. That's just impressions or shadows. But you definitely see a car around the area where? Where the mailboxes are. By coincidence, what Rachel Gentel told you all in terms of where the victim was describing he was. He was. Under that shaded part when it was raining, he was in the mailbox. When he described a defendant looking at him. He kept yelling, that is, he claims the victim kept yelling, of course, nobody else heard this, but he told the police it happened. Did Mr. Good say anything about when he came out that he heard the victim say, or the person on top say, pardon my language, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker? And look where he's reenacting it when you watch the video. Defendant's interview on the 29th. Uh, relevant question. This would be the next think it was important for you to hear again because he, in terms of wanting to be a police officer, he wants to know what she was doing to safeguard the firearm when somebody's around. Again, he's trying to talk that police jargon. He's also trying to be impressive, impress these police officers. Like, yeah, I'm one of you all. You know, I, I can understand police officers and all that stuff. I've got a criminal justice stuff. You know, you know how it is. You just kind of come into contact with people and you know, sometimes somebody attacked you and all that, trying to befriend them. But he's talking that police jargon. He's curious as to how you do that. The other thing that's important, and you've seen it by the photographs and also by the uh, videos that you've seen, you saw how he was. Because I think Mr. Pollock said, oh, he was this overweight person and all that. Okay, he's a little overweight. Technically, he's two, 204, I believe, 5'7". But he's, he's pretty fit there when you see him walking around. Because you might contrast that in terms of, you know, if you see him now in terms of his big, he, he was pretty fit then. So compare how he appeared then, and most importantly, compare how Trayvon Martin appeared, the ME photographs. Are you going to go ahead and actually ask this person what he was doing out there? No, sir. 
Very basic question. You didn't bother to ask. I mean, this guy was suspicious of what he's doing, circling the car. You didn't even ask him what he's doing. No, sir. He's a criminal. You don't have to ask criminals what you know what they're doing. So you've had two opportunities to identify yourself as somebody who was actually not being to do harm. Problem being is that what is in his mind's eye, which I can't get into because he's passed, that he perceives you as a threat. Okay? He perceives you as a threat. He has every right to go and defend himself, especially when he reaches into your pocket to grab your cell phone. Okay? Very insightful question by Investigator Serena. Like, you're reaching for your pocket, and if you, you know, like, gun? Then he's scared of him. He's scared of this person that he's following all over in the darkness out there. But of course, he doesn't have his gun out, nor does he feel a need to. Because, but he's scared of him. Can't have it both ways. I'm scared of basically. Okay. No locking mechanism. No safety feature. Nothing. It was inside your pants. Yes. Okay. I'm over inside your pants. He was mounted on you. You were he was mounted on your upper chest, or I mean, at what point were you able to free your waist side to go ahead and pull out your weapon? When he he was mounted on me, but he had pressure on my nose and my mouth suffocating me, and when he. Or 
he just they catch him in a lie and then he explains it away or tries to. Then, then when they confront him, okay, hold on, this guy's getting right next to you. And all, oh, well, he didn't really circle the entire car. And he tries to explain why this individual, Trayvon Martin, is suspicious to him. And he's determined to get that address. It's not to go follow the guy. It's not to go follow the victim. It's to just get the address. Again, is it he just wants to catch the bad guy? The guy, the effing punk that gets away? Is that why he's saying that? Then we move on to July 20th. 2013, Mr. Hannity, he's giving him home runs, easy questions. Can't even get that right, because he tells one lie after another. Listen. Then we get to the issue where you said to, on the, on the 911 call, that he's running. He said that to the dispatch. Is there any chance in retrospect as you look back on that night and what happened? <laughs> Trying to maybe get into the mindset, because we also have learned that, that Trayvon was speaking with his girlfriend supposedly at the time, that maybe he was afraid of you, didn't know who you were. No. You don't think that, why do you think that he was running then? Um, well, I, I mean, maybe I said running, but he was more. You said he was running. Yes. Uh, it was like skipping, going away quickly, mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't running out of fear. You could tell the difference. He wasn't running. He wasn't. He wasn't actually running. You know, sir. Hannity just asking a very simple question. Well, perhaps Trayvon Martin was scared of you, since you're following him, and he's running away from you. And so he realizes at that time, the defendant realizes, oh, that doesn't look good, because that means I'm chasing him. That means Trayvon Martin is the one that's scared. That doesn't look good for me. So what does he say? Oh, he's skipping away. La, la, la. That's what he's claiming. The unbuckling of the seatbelt. Here you opening the car door. Uh, and uh, this dispatch asked you at that point, and this became a, a very key moment that everyone in the media focused on, and the dispatcher asked you, are you following him? And you said yes. Explain that. I meant that I was going in the same direction as him uh, to keep an eye on him so that I could tell the police where he was going. I didn't mean that I was actually pursuing him. My daughter, when she's out in the street and I'm scared something's going to happen, I'm just kind of going in the same direction that she's in. I felt him take, uh, he, he had, uh, after he couldn't uh, hit my head on the concrete anymore, um, he started to try to suffocate me. Um, and I continued to take, push his hands off of my mouth and my nose particularly because it was excruciating having a broken nose and, and putting his weight on it. 
Uh, that's the point in time when he started telling me to shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh, and why did he tell you to shut up? I don't know. Where's all that blood on Trayvon Martin's hands? So is he screaming or not? Because why would allegedly Trayvon Martin tell him to shut up if he's not screaming? When did he first see your gun? After we were on the ground, I shimmed uh, with him on top of me and he made my jacket rise up and he being on top of me uh, saw it on my right side. So he's got to explain how this dark gun was concealed, which is concealed in his backside there, how all of a sudden it just became exposed. So get to the grass, listen, and how did you do that? I, uh, I guess you could say shimmy. I mean, he was straddled on me uh, with his full weight, and I would... At that point, he's able to just kind of shimmy. Before, he's, he's incapable of fighting back as he claims the victim is bashing his head over and over. But at this point, he gets, I guess, some strength and kind of shimmies. And then, what does he say? I feel that it was all God's plan, and for me to second-guess it or judge it, um, is there anything you might do differently in retrospect that the time has passed a little bit? No, sir. Yep. I don't know that I need to comment about that. It speaks for itself. And again, you just heard it. So I'll just put it up there. Just other parts of the same interview. Mr. Osterman, his best friend, who wrote a book about this experience, about the defendant. There's the victim had a slender build. Victim saw the defendant using the phone, followed him in his car first. Then he got out and didn't know the name of the street, tried to establish visual contact within our streets, etc. Straddle means knees on the armpit and punching. I guess I might as well do what everybody else wrote. A lot of the lawyers have done is using whatever we're going to call this. But do you see what he is saying now? He's saying that armpits. How does he get the gun out? Armpits. How does he get the gun out? The truth does not lie. This early, earlier, he showed you, he showed the police where that gun was. So how did he manage to get out and get a perfect shot to the heart of a 17-year-old man?
teenager. He doesn't say he grabbed the holster, he grabbed the gun between the rear sight and the hammer. Now these are two individuals, that is Mr. Osterman, who is a trained federal agent, and, uh, and who's trained the defendant in terms of firearms, so they know what they're talking about. In fact, he suggested the perfect gun to get. He describes in detail what part of the gun the victim touched. No DNA. Only the defendant's DNA. I guess that got washed away too. Or is it another lie that he tells? Pivot at 90 degrees, etc. Probably might try to get up again. At some point he goes, I, didn't, I wasn't sure whether he's dead, but then he holsters the gun. All right, let's talk about ill will in terms of one of the elements in terms of murder. And I'm going through this real quick, please. Spent years in trying and college trying to be a police officers. Dreams of hunting fugitives. Those are some of the documents that were submitted that I don't know if you had an opportunity to, to read or review. Learns all about self-defense law, exactly what you have to say. Talking about here in terms of the fact that the stucco man has actually been involved in catching somebody, so he wants to get credit for it too. He doesn't want to be left out after all. He's the neighborhood coordinator. Of course, he wants to make Trayvon Martin a criminal. And he couldn't find the address. Recall how he's trying to mislead the police. Oh, see, there's no address in the back of these. Why? If he's not doing anything wrong in following an individual, why does he have to lie about it? Common sense. How many arms did Trayvon Martin need for punching, moving to the sidewalk, grabbing the head, smothering the mouth and nose, grabbing for the gun all at the same time? How many arms did he need? How much supposed activity can be packed into 70 seconds? That's what we're talking about. Assuming it, be, it began immediately after the Rachel uh, Trayvon phone call. Moves, what, 40 plus feet from where he claims it started? Man, somebody there's the flash. What he claims Trayvon Martin did to him, 25 plus punches, 25 slams. How's he alive? How is the defendant alive? Or is he exaggerating that to justify in his mind what he had to do? The wrist lock that he describes. How did he learn that technique? Perhaps it was at the mixed martial arts that he kind of went three days a week or two days a week, three hours, but he really didn't get much training. Think about the time frame here. The evidence agreed in terms of the physical evidence and the testimony. I will submit it does. In terms of the guilt of this defendant. You recall Mr. O'Brien, the HOA president there at RTL, what he talked about? 
in terms of the procedures they're supposed to follow, in terms of neighborhood watch, etc. You recall Miss Thornville about, you know, follow people, call the police. Second degree murder. State's got to prove three elements. The victim, unfortunately, is dead. The death was caused by the criminal act of this defendant. And if there was an unlawful killing of Trayvon Martin by the act imminently dangerous to another demonstrating a depraved mind without regard for human life. An act includes a series of related actions arising from and performed pursuant to a single design or purpose. I am not going to let this effing punk or these A's get away. He's a criminal. An act is imminently dangerous to another and demonstrating a depraved mind if it is an act of serious of acts that a person of ordinary judgment would know is reasonably certain to kill or do serious bodily harm. I am following this guy. I'm armed, and I'm going to make sure he doesn't get away before the police get here. It's done from ill will, hatred, spite, or an evil intent. Defense going to claim, oh, he didn't have any, he was just a little upset. Why is he having to utter those things? Why is he having to lie about the whole thing? If he wasn't doing anything wrong in following this victim, why does he have to lie about it? Why wouldn't he admit that he went to follow him? Why does he have to come up with this, I didn't know the street, I didn't know the address? Doesn't that kind of show his mental state? It's of such a nature that the act itself indicates an indifference to human life. And in order to convict of secondary murder, it's not necessary for the state to prove the defendant had an intent. It's not first-degree murder. We're not saying that he intended to go and kill him. Well, he does for a moment there. They speak volumes of his choices. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Jacob really didn't get to choose anything, did he? Or anyone. State is, uh, the instructions that the court will read to you will tell you in part that the uh, state has charged this defendant with second degree murder. If you return a verdict of guilty, it should be for the highest offense, which has been proven, and there's a lesser included. And Hurricane Katrina wasn't just a thunder shower. In other words, your duty is if you find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of the highest crime, then if not, then you go to a lesser crime. Manslaughter, you commit an intentional act which resulted in the death and used a deadly weapon, excusable or uh, justifiable. You'll get those instructions too about no action and misfortune, etc. And the court's going to read the whole instruction to you. I just was. In terms of how you decide, and we talked briefly about that, it's to the evidence introduced into it alone, case must be decided only upon the evidence and the instructions. What the lawyers say is not evidence, and you are not even to consider it as such. May not decide because you're biased or sympathy or anger at anyone or feel sorry for anyone. Why do we have such rules?
What if? That's not a lack of evidence. There could always be more. That's not reasonable. You will not hear, because a lawyer or a Hollywood screenwriter can imagine something more than could be done, you must find the evidence lacking. You know, we don't have a big animation of how it happened. Does, did anybody see it out there? The defendant told the police this is what happened. There were no eyewitnesses to the actual shooting. Doubt? And again, what's, what's not reasonable? Self-defense. This is what the defendant applied to Virginia. I'm down fugitives, and you'll see the, the letters, emails, etc. Isn't that true? point is that injuries really are not required if a person is legitimately in fear for their life. But why exaggerate them? Unless he's lying about the whole thing. Yeah, no DNA. Fingerprints also weren't on the gun. Blood wasn't there. Credibility. But should you believe the defendant? Think about this. What a coincidence. That makes sense. Think of the jacket as he's claiming is going he's going down an angle. Which way would it go? Would the gun be exposed? Or just the opposite? Think about this. Doesn't that speak the truth? What a coincidence. The shot. All of a sudden the yelling stops. You see where some of those injuries are? What, the 
they pick up a sidewalk or they, they turn them upside down? Or is it just by scraping and rolling and fighting out there? They both work. I'm wrapping this up, believe it or not, and I thank you for your time and your patience. I ask you to come back with a verdict that speaks the truth, a verdict that is just. You heard from many people in this case, and I've summarized some of them. There's a lot more, actually, that you heard. We know you paid close attention throughout all these proceedings. Some of the people you heard from were the parents of both the victim and the defendant. Unfortunately, the only photographs left of Trayvon Martin are those ME photographs. I mean, they've still got other photographs, and you saw some of them, the football, when he was younger days, but they can't take any more photos. And that's true because of the actions of one person. The man before you, the defendant, George Zimmerman. The man who is guilty of second-degree murder. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to recess for the evening. Before I let you go, and while you're getting your notepads uh, to be ready to put place face down, I'm going to give you my instructions. You're not to discuss the case amongst yourselves or with anybody else. You're not to read or listen to any emails, text messages, um, or...